Hi, it's Candy O'Terry. Thank you so much for listening to the story behind her success. You know, it never ceases to amaze me. Stories of women doing great things with their lives and doing great things for others are everywhere. So I got a note from a colleague of mine a few weeks ago telling me about today's guest, and he asked me if I would like to interview her. I read all about her, and then I wrote back, yes, yes, yes. In the spotlight, a woman who heard the words, your baby has Down syndrome, about four hours after he was born. Jonathan would also need three open-heart surgeries. He was her first baby, and it didn't take long for today's guest to realize that there just weren't support services for her to lean on or to learn from. She did not see a world that she wanted for her son, so she set out to build one for him and for others with developmental disabilities. She's devoted the last 41 years of her life to this mission and was recently appointed to the Massachusetts Governor's Commission on People with Developmental and Intellectual Disabilities and the Autism Commission. She's also the president and the CEO of Northeast ARC, and we'll tell you all about that. Her name is Joanne Simons, and this is her story. Joanne, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. It's a pleasure to have you take us back to Jonathan's birth in 1979. And had a very easy, quick delivery, but there was subdued quality about the delivery room, and I thought, well, maybe it's because I'm at Brigham and Women's Hospital, and they do this hundreds of times a week, and they don't get very excited when a new baby is born. But I learned later that, in fact, it was because they had noticed something in the delivery room. And very quickly, he was taken from me, um, and they said he needed a little bit of assistance. And of course, I was one of those anxious mothers that say, what's his APGAR score? And when they said to me it was eight and nine, I thought, well, I don't have anything to worry about. But in fact, I did have a lot to worry about because it was a few hours later where a doctor came to visit me in my hospital room and said, I need to talk to you and your husband. And I said, well, he's sleeping on the floor. And they said, uh, no, we need to talk to both of you. And he went on and to talk about things that I really didn't understand Except at the end, he said, and there's some evidence of a syndrome, but I just want to mention it as an outside possibility. And I said, what kind of syndrome are you referring to? And he said, Down syndrome. But, you know, we'll have to do tests. Well, I had just had a master's degree in social work, and I knew that's how they delivered bad news. They tried to soften the blow. So immediately, I was convinced he had Down syndrome. You have said, I didn't choose this career. It chose me. When you looked around for support, when you brought this baby home in the first few years of his life, you found little or no support. So how did you first get involved? I made phone calls that first week when he was home, calling everybody that I could think of from local agencies to state agencies and people that might have mentioned that they had experience with people with intellectual disabilities. And finding none, I kept pushing and pushing. And finally, you know, there might be a door here or a window cracked here. But I think for me, the biggest, most positive thing that happened that he was pre-registered before he was born to go to daycare. And in 1979, daycare was a brand new phenomenon. In fact, my mother thought it was the end of civilization, that children could be cared for 50 hours a week outside the home by strangers. Well, I was committed to having a career and as I said, I pre-registered him for daycare. And I called the daycare director up to say, my baby had Down syndrome and he has heart defects. He needs to have open heart surgery. Will you still take him? And she said to me, if the cardiologist says that it's okay for him to come, yes, because I see him as needing to be hugged, fed, and loved like any other child, and we can do that. That 
was the beginning of knowing that I could find allies, and they were sometimes in unexpected places. Do you think that because you had just gotten your master's in social work that you were better able to know some of those questions to ask? Absolutely. It certainly put me in a position to know. One is I knew what should have been in place. So I knew that somebody should have been identified at the hospital to come talk to me because I was going through a crisis. And so that began me writing down everything that should have been in place for a family who's just given birth to a child with a disability. And when I had the opportunity, I was going to make sure that would never happen to anybody else. What were your goals then as you got started? My first goal was really to get into the workforce because I had moved here from Wisconsin after graduate school for a short period of time and to get back to work. It was even more important. And I remember the time being at a time where, you know, many women, if they had a husband that worked, have a baby and they stay home. That just wasn't going to be appealing to me, but it became more important than ever for me to be able to show that having a child with a disability was not going to deter me from what my career goals were. Now, I was 26 years old and had no career goals, but I knew that I needed to work in order to establish them. And in those first days, I realized that what I was going to do was I wasn't going to change anything about Jonathan, but I was going to change the world for him. And that's how I was going to take my grief and my sadness and my anger and my energy was going to channel into something positive to make an opportunity for him, but making it for everybody else. So how did you get started? Talk to us a little bit about that path. So the path, I, I began working for the state. Um, at that time, we had a department. We didn't even have a Department of Developmental Disabilities, and I'll use a word that's not even used anymore. We had a division of mental retardation within the Department of Mental Health and learned a lot about how state government works. But it works slowly, and I had so much energy and so much impatience. So two things about me, I'm impatient and I'm competitive. So the wheels of state government were not as appealing to me as what I saw could happen in the nonprofit sector. And I was very lucky 18 months later. So now I have a two-year-old. And uh, at the time, the Northeast Arc was hiring somebody to be the director of advocacy. And that was like a position that was made for me. And my boss at the time, who was the CEO for 36 years, he, he was at the Northeast Arc. I was only there for eight years at that time. Uh, Jerry McCarthy said, do whatever you want. He gave me a blank slate. So I started parent support groups. I started adaptive equipment lending library. I started an education program for children called Kids on the Block with Puppets. We did advocacy for special education. We did anything that families want. Families would call up and say, we need a recreation program. We'd build out our recreation program. We went from being the first, I believe, family support program in the country to what now is the largest division of services in the country that families support. At that time, they thought, oh, let's, we'll give families a couple dollars and keep them happy. No, now they realize that families are the largest service providers in the world. We're doing the work. You also wrote a handbook called the Down Syndrome Transition Handbook. Well, that was many years later after leaving the Northeast Arc, going back to state government because then I was had enough experience that I could be in a more important role and have a little bit more input and impact to becoming in my first CEO role. And Jonathan's aging, getting older, and he's in high school. And I realize the most important transition is the transition from school to adult life for a student with a disability. And I started lecturing on it. And I started writing articles about it. And it was very popular and very well received. And a colleague of mine from another state who was a psychologist had written a book about Down syndrome. And he said, you know, you need to write a book about this. And I thought, oh, okay, I'll write a book. And 
Fortunately, I was able to get a publisher. I wrote an abstract and somebody said, okay, we'll publish it for you. It was a publisher that I wanted. I had two in mind. And I had to sign a contract and say I would finish this in 18 months. And then I ran into another author and they said, that was way too ambitious. You should have asked for two years. And my father, who has always had been my biggest supporter, said, you better make sure you get this done before the deadline. So I wrote for 18 months. I took Fridays off and wrote Friday, Saturday, Sunday and wrote this book, the Down Syndrome Transition Handbook. But it's not for just people with Down Syndrome. It's anybody facing a transition who has a family member with an intellectual disability. Your journey took you back to Northeast Arc, which is where you are the CEO and the president. Can you talk to us a little bit about what the organization does, what the mission is in particular for people and families with disabilities? We change lives. You know, we can have an elevator speech um, that can tell you that the impact for people with disabilities is phenomenal. But, you know, we are impacting 15,000 people a year in 190 communities in Massachusetts from the beginning of life to the end of life. But the most important thing that we do is that we give opportunity and hope to families, to individuals. We are uh, progressive, we're innovative, and we're positively disrupting the system to do more than what people are expecting. It was a great journey for me to be able to come back to where I started. I'm sort of in the mature part of my career, but I didn't want anybody else to have this opportunity. The Northeast Arc has been rooted always in an innovation, and I knew there was more that could be done, and it was the right time to do it. Well, you're also just filled with innovation yourself and creativity. Talk to us about Arc Tank. Oh, the Arc Tank is a wonderful competition that we do, and you can imagine that it's a takeoff from the Shark Tank, and it's a similar model. We were very lucky that we got a million-dollar donation from Marblehead businessman uh, Stephen Rosenthal, and he said, uh, do something really brave and bold. And most organizations would just take the money, and their boards would say, great job, Joanne, you did a great job fundraising. But I have an amazing board of innovators as well, and they were on board to do something creative, and we came up with the idea with Steve to do an arc tank, to do an international competition where we would solicit the most innovative, creative, positively disruptive ideas and disabilities from around the world, and then we'd give money away for them to fund it. So we've uh, given away over $750,000 so far. This year, like everything else, we've paused it because it really is not an event that should be held virtually. We get 100 proposals a year. We've done it for three years in a row. They are judged, and the seven best go before the panel of judges of extraordinary um, men and women in our community. And in a very exciting afternoon at the JFK Library, which is we partner with the JFK Library Foundation, and not to be missed, of course, is the Kennedy's family legacy in this area of commitment to people with disabilities, but also that President Kennedy challenged us all to make a moonshot. And we're looking for that moonshot and disability. And we found some of them. The latest venture is a brilliant one. I feel like it's one of those ideas where there are many people saying, why didn't I think of that? Housed in a mall just outside of Boston, there's a place called the Center for Linking Lives. Tell us about that and how the idea came about. Well, you know, you're exactly right. It's like it was right in front of us. And why aren't more people seeing it? What we've always wanted for people with disabilities is to be in the community. And my son actually had a preschool class that was in the basement. So I come from the days where it was okay to put kids with disabilities out of sight. And then we found large 
industrial parks to put some of our programs in. But again, they're out of sight, out of mind. And it wasn't ever going to be acceptable for me to have that kind of uh, environment. But in searching for a better environment, we searched and searched and came up with another problem, which was parking. And then we stumbled across the Liberty Tree Mall, which is a mall in Danvers, had some empty spaces. And Frankly, some of those malls, as we all know, are struggling. They were struggled before COVID, and they're continuing to struggle to find their way, and they're becoming more innovative. And we thought that we could be part of a solution and solve our own problem as well. So we got to Liberty Tree Mall. We found space there. It's becoming, in many ways, evolving into a community center. People with disabilities, it's not only that they're coming every day there for programs and for employment training and for day services and support groups and recreation, but our organization is in the community. We are rooted in the community. And it solved the parking problem really easily because there's a lot of parking. But you know what also malls have? They have landscaping, they have snow removal, and they have security. Those are things that we struggle with or don't have. But the most exciting part is that as part of being in a mall, you needed to have a retail presence. So we decided to open up a store called Parcels, and it's cute because ARC is within the name Parcels, and our store features products made by people with disabilities or manufactured by companies owned by people with disabilities from around the world. So imagine that, a one-place shop where we're not only having our mission front and center, but we are actually helping 30 to 60 other entrepreneurs and companies sell and showcase their goods. So it's not enough for us to just showcase the abilities of the people that we support. And we have tremendous, we have jewelry and pottery and art that are the folks that we support have made. But there's in there, there's candles and there's bath and beauty products and home goods and food and popcorn and candy. And every day I go in there, there's more and more merchandise and there's furniture and there's pillows. It is, you know, you have that place that you go to every time you need a gift, but you don't know what it is that you need, that's what Parcels is. We think we're the best-looking store at the mall right now. You know, as I said when we first started talking about this, it just feels like one of those ideas where people go, why didn't I think of that? And also, because malls are in decline, you've brought business back to the Liberty Tree Mall, and now this is serving as a national model. Exactly, and we think it's highly replicable. We need to be good citizens. It's not enough for organizations to only come to the community with their hand out to say, this is what you need to do for us. We need to go to the community and say, what does the community need? And how can we make our mission match the community's need? And this is not the only example of what we've done. We uh, opened a coffee shop on Main Street in Peabody called Breaking Grounds. And I'd like you all to come because we're not quite breaking even yet. When we opened up Breaking Grounds a few years ago, there were many, many vacant storefronts. We began the revitalization of downtown Peabody. The statistics are stunning. One in six children in the United States today has a developmental disability. 80% of individuals with disabilities are not included in the workforce. Chronic loneliness is part of being developmentally disabled. More than 25% of working age Americans with disabilities live in poverty. So from where you stand as an expert on this subject now, where are we as a nation, Joanne, in understanding disabilities? What do you want us to know? I want you to know that we don't know how far and how much we can accomplish on behalf of people with disabilities, and importantly, to let people with disabilities lead the way in doing it. 
it's great for me to be able to talk to you as a professional and as a mom, but it's even better when you listen to the person with the disability tell you what their dreams and their hopes are. But I will tell you one thing that the pandemic has uh, shared for all of us is that the loneliness and isolation that you have felt each day during this pandemic when you were not allowed to go outside or you were cut off from those social connections. It wasn't difficult for people with disabilities because unfortunately they've been living a life of isolation and loneliness, too many of them. So I hope that that experience will translate into an understanding that we need to be kinder and more open to everybody around us. I think we have a lot to learn from people with disabilities. Jonathan has been my greatest teacher, and he continues to teach me each day with his awareness of what's going on and his ability to see the goodness in people. Yesterday, I was reminded of just how many more goals there can be when I learned of a young man with Down syndrome who actually completed an Ironman triathlon yesterday. Imagine that. Who would have ever thought that that's what we were going to be experiencing, that people with Down syndrome, you know, we know that they're graduating from high school, they're graduating from college, they're getting their driver's license, they're getting married, they're getting divorced, but now even an Ironman triathlon. So I don't even know how high we can soar because 41 years ago when Jonathan was born, I don't think an Ironman triathlon was even in my dreams. I have to believe that when you were growing up, you learned about giving back, about tolerance, maybe, about advocacy. What was it like for you growing up? I was a competitive swimmer, so I was competitive. But I also grew up in a family where I saw my father and mother go out almost every single night because they were volunteers. They were lay leaders in the Jewish community. So I grew up knowing that you needed to give back. So when Jonathan was born, I knew that I needed to do the same thing. And what drove me to a career was I wanted to be home at night. And so I thought if I got paid, took a job, and could accomplish the same advocacy, then maybe I could be home at night. Well, that didn't quite work out because I too ended up with a very deep volunteer commitment as well. So I would work all day, and then at night I would do my volunteer work. So I became president of the National Down Syndrome Congress and president of the National Down Syndrome Society. I served on the board of Special Olympics International. I got to work with two of the biggest heroes in our country was Eunice Kennedy Shriver and Sergeant Shriver. So my plan didn't actually work out because my husband would say to me, so where are you going this weekend? I said, well, I have a board meeting in Kansas City. And he said, Tell me how going to a board meeting about Down syndrome is better than staying home and being with your child with Down syndrome. And I said, well, you don't understand. Just forget about it. So uh, It's a larger goal. I stand on the shoulders of those who came before me, but I'm so proud of this generation of leaders because unlike previous generations where the majority of the work fell on the shoulders of mothers, dads are here with us and we are stronger because of the partnership that's happening in families. You know, you just mentioned Eunice Kennedy Shriver, and I'm wondering, what did you learn from her? One was to pick wisely your husband, because she picked a man who adored her and thought that she was the most brilliant person in the world in any room. Uh, the second thing that I learned from her was that everyone had knowledge that you needed. Jonathan is living proof that what you have done has worked for him as well. So can you give us an update? Jonathan lives independently on Cape Cod. He lives in his own house and he works at Roach Brothers Supermarkets. Maybe he has his 15-year award. 
He is a happy, well-adjusted guy. As you look in the rearview mirror at a career in this space, as an innovator, as an advocate, as a mother, as a champion for people with disabilities, what has been the lesson for you? When I look back, I am so filled with joy and pride um, of what we've accomplished and how we have, we have changed the world. I mean, it's not often that you can actually participate in a movement and see the change you have. Sometimes you have to wait and know that it's going to be another generation that's going to benefit by your work. But we've actually seen that change. Best piece of advice you've ever received in your life. And can you pass it on to our listeners wow. today? Trust yourself. When Jonathan was born and I said, how will I know when he needs help? How will I know? And the doctor said to me, you're going to know your child better than anyone else. Last question. At this moment in your life, sitting here in my living room, thank you very much, Joanne, for being here today. What does success mean to you? How do you define it? I think success is having lived a life well lived. I think having the ability to be surrounded by the things that you need and occasionally something you want. But most of all, success is having made a difference. Can I look and see that my time here, limited on earth, contributed to the improvement of what I'll leave behind. I want to say thank you so much for being in the spotlight, for sharing your story today on the story behind her success. Joanne Simons, president and CEO of Northeast Arc. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that's the story behind her success for this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you've got a suggestion for a woman I should interview, I'd really love to hear about her. So just email me, candy at candyoterry.com. You know, this podcasting thing is all about downloads and rates and reviews. So please say something nice about the show and also tell your friends so they can listen too. Follow me at Candy O'Terry Official on Facebook and at Candy O'Terry on all other platforms. And thank you for listening. I really am so happy to have you here.